We're in Acts chapter 16 this morning, Acts 16, and I want to start with this. I want you to think about how in some of our best-loved works of fiction, right, that the bad guy ends up redeemed at the end. And I'll just give you two examples. This isn't in every story. This isn't even in most stories, but it is a common theme in fiction. And two examples. The first is A Christmas Carol. Right, we're about a month away from the Christmas season, and I used to read that book every Christmas. I bet I've read it two dozen times. It's one of my favorite stories. You know, at the beginning, I think everybody knows the story. Ebenezer Scrooge is the most miserable human on earth. I mean, he is—he's mean, he's ugly, he's miserly. The only thing in the world he loves is his money, and his money doesn't make him happy. But by the end of the story. This man has become completely different. He is a source of joy and generosity and grace and kindness to others. And then the second example is the first Star Wars movie, which I know there's, there's some Star Wars nerd in the room who's begging to say, um, actually, that's episode four. But uh, I realized that it was the first one that any of us saw. Uh, and I can remember, because I was a little kid when that movie came out, just dated myself, and it was the first movie that I was ever begging my parents to go take me to see, and it did not disappoint. I can remember in that opening scene, you see that long spaceship, right, and then, and then the smaller spaceship is shooting lasers at it, and then you see Darth Vader come down that hallway, and I had never seen anything so terrifying in my life. At eight years old, I was just mesmerized that this this dark, evil being with so much power is right there. And yet by the end of Return of the Jedi, he's thoroughly redeemed. And I'm sorry if I just ruined the movie for you. You've had 40 stinking years to watch it. But why do we accept that idea in fiction, but we don't seem to believe in it in real life? And here's what I mean by that. We all know, we all know the Bible says in many different ways, in many different places, love your enemies, pray for those who hate you, blessed are those who are persecuted, treat others with kindness when they treat you with meanness, overcome evil with good. And yet we as Christians have a way of explaining that away. Oh, well, that doesn't mean this, or well, no one expects anybody to actually live that way. And yet we're going to look at a story today of someone who did live that way. And I just want to challenge you to embrace this. And here's what, I'm, here's what I want to say to you. You can listen today, and even if you stay awake the whole time, which I hope you will, you can listen today and walk away and say, yeah, okay, that's interesting, and leave unchanged. You can say in your own heart's heart, uh, your, your heart of hearts, I am not going to do what this sermon is telling me because I don't want to let this other person off the hook. But I'm telling you, if you obey the word of God and what you're going to hear today, you aren't letting someone off the hook. You are setting yourself free. You're, you're letting yourself out of prison, a prison you didn't even know you were in, okay? Now, we don't believe that the Christmas spirit redeems anybody. I'm, I'm a Christmas-loving guy. I can't wait for the Christmas season to start. I'm one of those guys who plays Christmas music wall-to-wall. I, love, I, I want the tree up the day after Thanksgiving. But the Christmas spirit doesn't redeem anyone's soul. It just puts them in debt. I don't believe in the force. Star Wars movies, at least four through six, are pretty good. I can debate you about the others. But the force is not real. But I believe in the gospel, if you're a Christian, it's because you believe in the good news. 
Let me just remind you, Romans 1.16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Well, well, not the guy on death row because he murdered people with an ax. Yes, him. Well, well not the, the politician who has lied and, and, and put our country in a bad place. Yes, him. Well, well not the person uh, who swindled people out of their life savings. Yes, him. The good news is for everyone. The good news is for all who will receive, everyone who believes. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New creation. There will never be a day that a redeemed child of God stands in front of Jesus and hears Jesus say, Remember that time you did that awful thing? It won't happen. Because it is redeemed. It is forgotten. It is forgiven utterly, completely, totally. He doesn't keep a record of our wrongs once we've placed them under the blood of the cross. Now, I want you to do something for me, actually for yourself. I want you to, I want to have this little thought experiment. I want you to think of someone you don't like. Now, don't say their name out loud. For goodness sakes, don't make eye contact with them right now if they are in the room. Right now, most of you are making eye contact with me, and that is unsettling. But uh, it could be someone who's hurt you. It could be someone who has, who has betrayed you. It could be someone who is currently making your life miserable. It could be someone who, uh, because of their beliefs, because of their lifestyle, because of their personality, they just drive you insane. But someone you don't like. I want you to think about them. I want you to picture them. I want you to say their name mentally in your mind. And we'll come back to them in a moment. See, we're in Acts 16. And I want you to know, I think that Acts 16 is a time in Paul's life when he was at his lowest point since that day when Ananias came to see him and he was blinded because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and Ananias called him brother and healed him and brought him into the family of God and baptized him. And ever since then, I think his life has been an upward trajectory and now he hits a really rough patch. Because Acts 16 starts with Paul and his best friend having a breakup of sorts. You may know that Paul had a friend named Barnabas. When Paul was this new believer and everybody didn't, no one trusted him because he was a former persecutor of the church, Barnabas is the one who came along and said, I, I, I vouch for this guy. I believe in him. And then later on, Barnabas is the one who brought him out of Arabia and brought him to Antioch so they could begin serving a church together. And Barnabas is the one who went with Paul when he had this crazy idea, let's take the gospel to places where it's never been taught before, to Gentiles who don't even believe in the Torah, much less our God. And it had never been done before, and they did it, and they end up planting churches all over the Mediterranean world. These are best friends. These are guys that are ministry partners and yoked at the hip. And, and yet, Acts 16 says that, that Paul came to Barnabas one day and said, let's go back to those churches that we planted before and see how they're doing, and, and then we'll plant some more. And Barnabas says, sounds good. Let me call John Mark, my cousin John Mark, who went with us on the first journey. And Paul says, we're not bringing him. He ditched us, remember? And it says... That Luke tells us that they had such a sharp disagreement that they separated. That word sharp disagreement, in English it sounds kind of mild. In Greek it's the word paroxysmos. 
There's an English word we don't use a lot, paroxysm. You can look it up. Uh, it, it literally means a sudden outburst of emotion. So you may not be able to picture this in your mind, but an apostle of God and his best friend were yelling at each other, saying things they probably could not take back. And at least for a time, and maybe for the rest of their lives, they were separated as friends. And you can't tell me that doesn't hit Paul in the heart, knowing that he's lost his best friend knowing that he bears a significant responsibility for that. So he still feels this call. He wants to visit these churches, and so he takes Silas, who is a fellow believer, and they go, and they go to these churches in these different places, and they find that they've, those churches have elected elders and deacons, and they've created structures that enable them to function well, and they're, they're thriving, and they're winning souls and making disciples, and they're very excited about this. And then Paul, his mindset is, okay, let's keep moving. Paul had, got, had the missionary bug at that point. He did not believe in doing what I do and just preaching in one church over years and years. He had to be on the road constantly sharing the gospel. And so he says to Silas, okay, let's keep going. Let's plant some new churches. And by this time, they've got two new ministry partners, by the way. They've got Timothy and Luke who've both joined them. So there's four of them. But a, a weird thing happens. And I don't know that this ever happened to Paul before or since, but the Holy Spirit says no. We're going to plant churches. This is Asia Minor. This is where I grew up. God says, no, not here. This is going to be somebody else's ground to till, to plant, to fertilize, to, to harvest. And so Paul must have been shocked. He must have been confused. What am I supposed to do? All I know to do is preach the gospel and plant churches. You're telling me I can't do that? And so they, they wandered all the way to the coast without direction until Paul suddenly had a dream. And in the dream, a man from Macedonia, present-day Greece, says to him, come over here, we need you. And that's the sign from God. And so the four get on a ship and they cross the sea and they land at a place called Neapolis in current day Greece. And by the way, anybody here have a European ancestry? I do. You can look at me and tell. Um, this is the first moment that the gospel lands on European shores. So our ancestors first got the light of the gospel in Acts 16. Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy and Luke get off at Neapolis. They walk to the nearest large city, which is Philippi. And Paul's method before was always, he goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So he's looking for a synagogue to preach in. But there's not a synagogue in the whole city of Philippi. You needed 10 faithful Jewish men to have a synagogue, and there weren't that. So instead, there's this small gathering of women who gather at a river because that's, that's the tradition. If there's not a synagogue, you go to the nearest body of water and look for a fellow uh, Hebrew and you, you pray to the Lord. And so Paul goes to the river along with Silas and he meets this small group of women who are praying to Yahweh. He begins to share the gospel about the, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. And, and here's what happens. Acts 16 verse 14 says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said uh, by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So if you want to amaze your friends after church today, you can ask them the trivia question, who was the first convert to Christianity in Europe? And the answer is Lydia. There's a couple of interesting things that Luke tells us about Lydia. First of all, she was not actually Jewish. She was a God-fearer, a worshiper of God, which is a technical term. 
for a Gentile who hadn't yet converted, but who had begun to believe in the God of Israel. So she's here praying with these Jewish women. She comes to believe. And the other interesting thing about her is it says she was a seller of purple goods, which we hear that and we think, okay, grape juice, right? Uh, but no, purple garments were very treasured in that culture. They were bought by the upper class. In Roman society, they were called equestrians, the nobility. This is not working class stuff. So this woman, as rare as it was in that time, was a businesswoman. We don't know that she had a husband. She had a home of her own. This was very unique for a woman to be able to make such a good living on her own, but she did. Must have been a very intelligent, very driven woman. But when she's converted, her thought is, her first thought is, hey, if you think I'm worthy, why don't y'all come stay with me? which is essentially her saying, let's plant a church in my house. So Lydia is the beginning of the Philippian church. So Paul and Silas continue going out to that riverbank to, to pray with uh, the Jews that they meet there and anybody else they can meet. And in order to get there, they have to walk through the agora, which is the marketplace. And it's this big uh, courtyard full of shops and tents and merchants and street vendors, and you can picture uh, the sights and smells of the, of the raw meat hanging and the people calling out and, and hawking their wares. And in the middle of this marketplace, this busy place, there's this slave girl who is possessed by a demon that enables her to tell people's fortunes. Now, if you know the Gospels, you know that whenever Jesus encountered someone who was demon-possessed, they looked like you and me, but they would start crying out whenever they saw Jesus because they were terrified of him, which should make you very encouraged that we're on the side of the one that demons are scared to death of, right? He's on our side. We're in good shape. But that's what this girl does here. Jesus isn't in her presence, but these guys are carrying the spirit of Jesus. And so she starts following them around and shouting to everyone who will listen, these men are servants of the most high God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you would think that Paul would be grateful for the free publicity, but instead look what it says next in Acts 16 verse 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, I love the way Luke puts this. And I don't think he was trying to be funny, but I find it funny that Paul, in my mind, the second greatest Christian who ever lived, besides Jesus himself, that Paul did not, was not motivated by love for this girl was not motivated by the glory of God. He was motivated by his own annoyance. I find it amazing that God used the crankiest exorcist of all time. And yet he did, which again ought to encourage us. Paul cast this demon out of this girl. And all joking aside, this girl's life must have been a living hell because not only was she inhabited by a demonic spirit, which just essentially sapped her of any joy, but she was also being trafficked by these evil men who owned her. And now they've lost their source of income because she doesn't have this power anymore to look at a person and say, you have uh, two kids and your wife is such and such and here's what's going to happen. And so even though these men are scum of the earth, they are Gentiles and Paul and Silas are Jews. So they have this, uh, this racial leverage over them in a, in a Gentile city like Philippi, Philippi. And so they call the authorities Paul and Barnabas are immediately arrested. Paul and Silas are arrested, stripped, and beaten with rods. Now, I, I need to explain this to you. 
It was common in the ancient world, if you were guilty of a crime that wasn't punishable by death, to be beaten. They didn't have prisons. They didn't have the institution we call, I mean, I know we're about to talk about a jail, but that was usually a temporary holding place. There was no such thing as the prison system. You didn't sentence someone to life behind bars. So you were either beaten or you were killed. In the, in the Jewish world, the law of Moses had a, had a sense of mercy. It said, you can't beat a man 40 times. You can give him 39 lashes with a, a piece of leather and that's it. And not that that doesn't hurt. I'm sure it's incredibly painful, but it's not going to kill you. It's going to teach you a lesson. The Roman law had no such uh, strictures. You could beat a man as, as long as you wanted. If you killed him, oh well. I am sure that Paul and Silas were beaten within an inch of their lives. Because that's the way Roman justice operated. They were, when it was done, they were a, a standing bruise, bleeding from several places, who had to be carried or dragged into the jail. And again, I, I told you the jail is not like in Huntsville or even the, the county jail here in Conroe. This, and I've actually been there to Philippi, the ruins of Philippi. The, there's a ruin of the jail itself, and it is a tiny tiny stone facility. It's claustrophobic, it's dark, it's musty. They're dragged into that place. Men who are emotionally traumatized, physically in desperate need of medical care, and instead the jailer, who's our third character we want to pay attention to, along with the slave girl in Lydia, the jailer takes them, doesn't even look them in the eyes, and locks their feet in stocks. These wooden, these wooden contraptions that hold their legs still, shoves them in a corner, and then walks a few feet away and goes to sleep. Now, the jailer probably would have been an ex-soldier, a, a member of the legions who had gotten too old to fight. This is how the Romans uh, rewarded people who had been faithful soldiers. They gave them jobs. This is a man who had dealt death. He had traveled the world, killing anybody who was opposed to the empire. So he was not a man who was squeamish about blood and guts, and he was not sentimental at all. And that's why he was able to sleep while these men suffered, just a few feet away. Now, if you're Paul, I want you to put yourself in that position and think to yourself, I, I've just lost my best friend, and it's mostly my fault. I've wandered for weeks, unable to do what I love doing, which is preaching the gospel and planting churches. When I'm finally able to preach is to this small group of women, and, and, and then I, I get so annoyed with this fortune teller girl who's following me around every day that I snap and I cast a demon out of her, and that ends up with me and, and my friend Silas getting beaten within an inch of our lives. And now this guy has the nerve to just lock us in stocks and leave us here to die. And now he's three feet away snoring. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure, although I think of myself as a pretty kind-hearted man, I'm pretty sure I would have hated that man's guts. And I would have fantasized of all the things I would want to do to him and all the things that I hope happen to him and how the Lord, I hope, drops a rhinoceros on his head as soon as he walks out of here. And yet, look what happens next, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You know, that's, that's a really unusual earthquake, wouldn't you say? It has these very limited uh, damages. Just, it just really hurts bonds and, and jail cells. It's almost like God's involved or something. Verse 27 says, When the jailer woke, 
and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Here's a note so you understand why he's about to do that. Roman law said if you were in charge with a prisoner and that prisoner escaped because of your own negligence, you had to serve out that prisoner's sentence. So here's a, a small prison, maybe, maybe seven, eight people, small jail. Uh, they all have uh, sentences to lay out. That means Paul has to be beaten as many times as each of those people were going to be beaten. That means he has to serve some of them probably waiting for execution. He, he might have to have his head chopped off. So he's, he's saying, I'm, I might as well take my own life. I'm dead anyway. Verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, what he should have done from the very beginning. And he was baptized at once, and he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Think about this miracle that just occurred. The, the, the earthquake's miraculous enough. An earthquake that just causes bonds to drop off wrists and, and, and jail doors to swing open. That's nothing compared to a hardened man of blood and guts who turns to Jesus and now wants to take care of these men who a few hours ago he didn't care about. That's the real miracle here. How did it happen? What did Paul and Silas do? They did three things. They, they sang, and they, they stayed, and they prayed. They sang when others would have felt sorry for themselves. They stayed when others would have run. They prayed when others would have cursed. And you might be wondering, well, why did the other prisoners stay in their cells too? Because if they're not believers in Jesus, and their, their doors swing open, and their bonds, their stocks break off, why didn't they just run for the hills? It's the middle of the night. It's not like anybody can catch them. And all I can think, this is just my opinion, is they've been listening for the last few hours, to these two men who were this close to death, who were bleeding all over, singing praises to God, and then an earthquake hits, and they must be thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm sticking with these guys, because they seem to know what they're doing. Years later, Paul, an older man, is in jail again. Now he's in prison in Rome. And he receives a gift from a church in a place called Philippi, this church, these people. And that church brought him so much joy in his imprisonment that he wrote them a letter that became our current book of Philippians. If you ever stop and read it, it'll take you 10 minutes tops. It's the happiest letter in the whole Bible, happiest book in the whole scriptures. It's Paul just essentially telling us over and over again, rejoice. Whatever happens, rejoice. Because this church brought him joy. This church was a great church. And it started, let me remind you, with a Middle Eastern dress seller, a Greek slave girl, and a Roman soldier. Three people who had nothing in common. If they, will, if they were alive today, if we put them in present-day Montgomery County, Lydia would be a, a high-end dressmaker with a nice townhome in the woodlands. And the, the jailer would be a, a cop in downtown Conroe who had served 
uh, in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the, the slave girl would be a drug-addicted prostitute who lives across the tracks and has a really mean pimp, and these three would never get together. Lydia's not inviting those other two to her house for wine and cheese before the theater. The cop is not having them over for brisket and football. It doesn't work that way. And, the, and the, the slave girl doesn't have a home. They would never be friends. And yet they became the foundation of a great church. And the reason why is because of the gospel. Because the gospel is the only power on earth that can bring people like you and me salvation and forgiveness and abundant life and eternal life in heaven. And it's the only force on earth in the whole universe that can heal the hatred between us. So what should we do? Well, we sing and we stay and we pray. We sing, not referring to the singing we do in worship, although that is important. But I mean, we testify to others about how good God is. We're their connection. You understand this. For most people, we're the only Bible they'll ever read. They need to hear from us how good God is. And even in moments when, like with Paul and Silas, they are at their darkest. When times are difficult, they need to see. I got news for you. If you go to school or if you're working or if, or if you live in a neighborhood with people who aren't Christians, the moment you enter a time of trial, every unbeliever is looking at you to see, do they practice what they preach? Does their God make any difference in their lives? And not to put pressure on you because I know suffering's hard enough and not to say that it's not okay to grieve because it is. Jesus wept at the tomb of a friend. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to cry out to God. But remember what Job said. When he lost everything, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You can do that. Even in your grief, you can cry out to God and say, I still trust you. We sing, we stay. When it would be easier to walk away from people we disagree with, people who make our lives inconvenient, people who, who, just, who just, they're nails on chalkboard for us. We choose to stick with them. We choose to love them like no one else ever will. We return hatred with love. We return cruelty with kindness. We return grudges with total forgiveness. We do what the scriptures say, even though we don't want to. And then we pray. I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 14, it says that when Paul was preaching to that little group of, of women by the riverside, it says, the Lord opened her heart, meaning Lydia, opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying. See, here's the thing. You've got people in your life who are far from God, whether they are people who don't believe in God, whether they're people who uh, haven't yet accepted Christ as their Savior, whether they're people who are believers in Jesus, but they've backslidden and they're headed in the wrong direction. People you should be concerned about if you're not already, and it's, it, you feel like you're banging your head against a wall because they won't listen to you. Let me give you a great way to pray. Lord, open her heart. Lord, open his heart so they would hear your word. From me, from someone else, open their heart. Now, I, here's my theology, cards on the table. I don't believe that God forces anybody to be saved that doesn't want to be saved. I don't believe that God drags anybody across the line of salvation, kicking and screaming. So I don't think that means that Lydia hated Jesus and then said, okay, I guess I, guess I have to come. I think it means God spoke truth to her in a way that she understand, that suddenly confronted her with the choice. Am I going to believe this? Am I going to trust this? And she said, yes. I think that's what happens when we pray this prayer. 
that God answers and puts them in a position of decision and the decision is up to them. But I encourage you to pray that way because there are people in your life that need to hear. And some of those people are people you don't like. And that brings me to the last thing. Remember how we started. I asked you to think again about that person that you don't like. I would love it if all of you came to me afterwards and said, no, I like everybody. That'd be great. But I know reality. I know that many of you have people in your life that have, have, have really caused you pain or that really drive you nuts. And I want to challenge you to do something I, I absolutely promise you're not going to want to do. And that is bring them to the Lord in just a moment when I pray. I'm almost done. And when I pray, I want you to say that person's name to the Lord and, and pray that God would help you to see them through his eyes. But more importantly, pray that God would open that person's heart. Because the reason they are what they are is they don't have the Holy Spirit transforming them. And they need to repent. And probably you do too. And again, I will say, you don't want to do that. But when you do it, you're letting yourself out of prison. When you do it, you're setting yourself free. That's the power of grace. That's the power of forgiveness. And you might say, yeah, but I'm fine in my prison. That's where I want to be. And so I will say this to you. You and I were the bad guy once. We may not have held a hammer and nails in our hands and put Jesus on the cross, but our sin put him there just as much as any Roman soldier did. Our sin put him there. And while we were his enemies, Romans 5 says, he died for us. So we do this. We do this for the people we don't like, knowing that it's going to be good for us, knowing that it's going to be good for them, but we do it most of all because he did it for us. And that's what it means to follow Jesus.